Hey, uh, special shout out to Whitney. Can we give her another round of applause just to thank for being here? Uh, spectacular. Uh, Emily and I went to uh, the seminar that she did on allyship. We're going to be bringing that to the barn sometime uh, this fall, uh, probably October. Uh, we have planned a kind of a whole series of a partnership arrangement with that organization and her uh, for obvious reasons. She's an extraordinary young woman, and uh, you are blessed if you find her in your orbit. So I'm delighted that she was here with us today. Uh, we're going to take her up on that offer to be with us as much as we can get her. So every, every other week, right? <laughs> Listen, I wanted to do uh, this standalone message for a while now to kind of challenge us and encourage us. Uh, I put it on the schedule for Labor Day about a year ago. And I had no idea at the time, but it's obvious that God did where we would be as a church uh, come right now. The property over in McLean has sold. The check from the buyer has cleared. We've met with our investment guys last Thursday. Uh, we are preparing to begin to lean forward into the vision that God has had for us for five years. It's a vision that's been tested over the last five years through a season of lack. Uh, but I don't mean God didn't do fantastic things during that season. He really did. Uh, not a bad thing for a church to learn how to get every single drop of benefit out of every single penny. I don't think that's going to change, but I will say this. The message we're going to deal with today might have some impact on things that do need to change. Let me just pray for it, and we'll get to it. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, for all of us, that you died for us, for all of us. Nobody accepted. We pray that as we open your book this morning, your words to us, we might hear you, we might respond to you, we might be changed by you. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to read a passage to you from the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. It is a passage that if you've been in church uh, any time at all in your life, you have probably heard it. You've probably heard maybe even multiple messages on it. And uh, the danger is that you're going to think that because you uh, have some familiarity with this passage or that you've heard messages on it before, that you have already gleaned everything there possibly is to know from this passage. Um, so you'll just, you know, get on Facebook or text people, see what President Trump's up to, whatever. Uh, I will say this. You'd be mistaken if you believe that you've gleaned everything there is to glean from this passage. Uh, I know we don't have everything gleaned from this passage because of the way that we live. It proves it. I uh, will state my belief this as we get into it. I think God's involvement with the surge on, an, on a miraculous way uh, may well hang in the balance of what we do with Jesus' teaching today. So if you've got your Bibles or your apps or whatever, or if you've already got it memorized, you can just kind of check me to see if I'm correctly doing everything from the English Standard Version. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it, you expert on the law? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, 
and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Well, if you spend any time studying through the book of Luke, you're going to find that the first nine chapters really address a specific question and answers it. And that question is, who is this Jesus? The next nine chapters, starting in, verse, in chapter 10, really kind of deal with the second question, which is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And, and chapter 10 begins to answer that question. What does it mean to be a disciple, a follower of Christ? And the first part of chapter 10, right before what we just read, basically says this. Jesus' disciples are messengers. They're given the gospel message, and they are to communicate that gospel message to everyone that they meet, everyone they come into contact with, urging everyone to believe it. The last part of chapter 10, which we just read, says that in addition to sharing the gospel, we are to be neighbors, to meet the needs of people around us, whether or not they happen to believe that gospel message. Now, those two things, it turns out, the gospel and being neighborly, go together like peanut butter and chocolate, right? Neighborliness is the way that you and I bust out of our comfort zone in our worlds to involve ourselves in someone else's. Neighborliness eventually leads us to share the gospel. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So we're going to look at what Jesus means by being a neighbor. You might have some questions like the lawyer did. Uh, is being a neighbor required of us as disciples? Or is it just for the extroverts? How far does this thing go? What is it that's supposed to motivate us? How does this work? And I got to say that some of us are going to have as much trouble with this this morning as this lawyer did. Let's start with whether neighborliness is optional or not for believers. The first thing in this passage we see is an interaction between Jesus and a lawyer. And he's not a, he's not a lawyer in the typical sense that we make jokes of around here today. Uh, he's not the lawyer that you're kind of used to. He is a Jewish religious legal expert. And he asks a question. And we're given information. We are made privy to the reason behind the question. We know why he asked. He wants to trap Jesus. He's looking to test Jesus. So it raises a question, because I'm always asking questions. Why would he want to do that? What's up with that? Well, you know something about Jesus, if you read anything about him in the Bible? Seems like he's always hanging around with people who are lawbreakers. 
He hung around with people who did not obey the law of God, the outsiders, the outcasts. And so I think the lawyer intends to expose Jesus as someone who basically doesn't really think that highly of the law of God, doesn't really respect it that much, doesn't think it's all that important that you actually obey it. So he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What laws do I have to follow? How, about, how good do I have to be? What do I have to do to become saved or accepted by God? He expects Jesus, I think, because of Jesus' friendliness, neighborliness towards the unwashed masses to say something like this. Well, I'm glad you asked that question, but I don't think it really matters all that much how you live. God just loves everybody. He just accepts everyone. You just go to God and he'll love you and accept you and it'll all be good. And had Jesus said that, then the lawyer would spring the trap and expose Jesus as someone who really was denigrating the law of God. Unfortunately for the lawyer, Jesus is setting his own trap. Turns out it's okay to be trapped by Christ. He doesn't have motives to harm us, but to awaken us. So Jesus responds with his own question. Maybe it's not as cute as the T-Rex question, but it is brilliant. It's a brilliant question. Well, tell me, what's in the law? How do you read it, oh, legal expert? I don't think Jesus expected a recitation of all 600-plus laws that the Jews had figured out how they had to follow. I think he expected a boiled-down summary, and, of course, he gets the summary. And interestingly, this guy did not make this summary up on the spot. We know that Jewish legal experts had studied the moral code of, of, of God, and, and they had come up with these two principles. So this guy throws those two principles out. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It was just what Jesus was looking for. So what is Jesus really up to here? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. What does that even mean? A really good explanation came from a fellow named Archbishop William Temple. He was a former Archbishop of Canterbury. He said this, your religion is what you do in your solitude. And what he's saying is this, you are on a, for some reason you're in Illinois cornfield area. You're at a bus stop in the middle of nowhere surrounded by cornfields. Waiting for the bus, unbeknownst to you, the bus is broken down. And it's going to be four hours until the bus shows up. So you're there, after the first hour, your iPhone is dead, your laptop is dead, you got nothing to read, nothing to look at, nothing to do, nothing to whatever. Where does your mind go when it's not forced or allowed to go anywhere? When you can think of anything you want to think about, where does your mind go naturally? Where does it go instinctively? Where does your mind love to dwell? Is it on God? Is it on his beauty, his attributes, his majesty, his character, his excellencies? Is that where your mind goes when it can go wherever it wants? And the answer for most of us is, well, of course not. <laughs> that's not naturally where we go. And Archbishop Temple would say, wherever your mind goes, that's your real focus. That's your real religion. That's where your faith is. That's your real God. That's your real deity. So the first test of this law is to love God so much that he dominates your solitude. So much that no matter what's going on in circumstances around you, you always have, no matter how good or bad the circumstances are, you always have what you most desire. Him. It's to be engaged in what Whitney's saying about. For your glory, I will do anything just to see you. 
to behold you as my king. Now, that's the first one. And the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. What does that look like? Well, think about it. To meet the needs of your neighbor with all of the intensity, all of the force, all of the joy, all the speed, all the power, all the resources that you would meet your own. Be as happy for them when their needs are met as you are happy for yourself when yours are. Put your happiness inside their happiness so that what makes them happy makes you happy. We struggle with this. Just like the guy on the screen. I will admit, to beginning to plot a covert operation against the two cats that my neighbor lets out, who visits and rips up the cushions on our patio furniture. We struggle to love our neighbor as ourselves. Do, do you f- begin to feel the force of these two statements? Like I do? I mean, maybe we can feel good about ourselves if we identify the laws that we think we're keeping and kind of ignore the ones that we kind of cast aside. But if you look at the character, the heart engaged that the law is after, what's required by these two statements from this lawyer? Maybe we don't think so highly of ourselves. But Jesus answers the guy. Ha, you have the right answer. Congratulations. All you got to do, all you got to do is just do those things and you will be saved. You'll earn eternal life. And this is also brilliant. Because on the one hand, what Jesus is saying is that the law that the lawyer thought he was denigrating, the law does accurately outline a way of life that is right. I mean, the law tells us exactly how we ought to live. We should love God at that level because he's worthy of it. We should love our neighbor that way because it's just the golden rule. Do unto others, right? Jesus says, yeah, all you got to do is just do what the law requires. But, but, but what, what is Jesus really saying? Yeah, see, the law that you've summarized is a way of life. It's just not the way to life. You should live that way. But you'll never be saved trying to do that. Because you can't. I'm trying to show you that, Jesus says. It is one of the few things Freud got right. If you can't, if you can't do it, give up. We know the lawyer immediately senses the danger he's in. Because we're told he wants to justify himself. So he asks, well, who's my neighbor? Why did he want to justify himself? Because he knew he wasn't living that way. See what's going on? The scholar is going, well, I hear you, but surely, surely, Jesus, you don't just mean anybody. Certainly there are limits to the recipients of my neighborliness. I mean, just who are you talking about? I mean, let's, let's whittle this thing down so that uh, it's nice and comprehensible, it's nice and reasonable, and frankly, it's nice and doable. I can, I can do it and still earn salvation. Why is he doing that? Because his entire world is based on, I can be good enough to earn salvation. And he senses Jesus is pulling that rug out from under him. Because as soon as he summarizes the law, it begins to dawn on him that it is an impossible thing to do absolutely perfectly, which is God's requirement, perfection. But Jesus says, sure, go ahead. See if you can pull that off. Of course, the man is feeling it. So he goes, okay, 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 okay. let's wait a minute. Let's, wait a minute. Let's, let's ponder this. Let's think about this thing. I got to push back just a little bit. Who is my neighbor? What's the minimum standard God would require for me to earn salvation by being a good neighbor? And Jesus says, hey, that reminds me of a story. (laughs) And he tells him this parable. In the story, we have a hero who does what? 
He meets basic human needs through deeds. It's incredibly costly, incredibly sacrificial, and incredibly dangerous. But the hero meets a whole range of needs, financial, emotional, physical, medical, transportational. Remember, the story is not just a story. It is an answer to a specific question. What is the absolute core, the absolute minimum that I have to do to be able to say that I've loved my neighbor as myself? What's the standard? What's the minimum standard? And Jesus Christ says, oh, to meet the needs of people around you who don't even believe what you believe. See, because one of these guys is a Samaritan and one's a Jew. Samaritans and Jews. Two different religions altogether. And each one thought the other were oppressors and infidels and blasphemers. Jesus says, I just want you to find people that you would normally hate. People that you would normally despise. People who do not believe what you believe. And I want you to meet their needs with such concreteness and such sacrificial love that it will astonish them and everybody else who sees it going on. Why? Well, when you meet the human needs of people around you, especially when they don't believe what you believe, especially when you should be hating them and they hate you back, when you do that with that level of costliness and sacrifice, you are going to have to end up sharing the gospel. Because that's what they're going to need to hear to make any sense of your life whatsoever. Without the gospel to make sense of you, your life is completely inexplicable. Do you see how the gospel message and neighboring Jesus puts together intended for them to go hand in hand? Maybe you've heard the story of a guy named Daryl Davis. We've got his picture up here. Cool dude. Known for his boogie-woogie piano playing style. He's played with Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, B.B. King, Bruce Hornsby. He's an author. He's a band leader. He's an actor. Uh, PBS, just this past February, uh, had a documentary that they aired called Accidental Curries, Courtesy. Courtesy. And it wasn't about any of his musical accomplishments or professional accomplishments or authorial accomplishments. It was about how for 30 years, Davis has risked his own life to seek out and befriend members of the Ku Klux Klan. He has led 200 of them to step out of their robes, hand them to him, and walk away from the Klan. In fact, I, I think I'll tell you a story. He was going to meet, I think the first person he met was the Grand Wizard of Maryland. And he had a white lady, who's a friend of his, call up and make an appointment, saying, hey, I got a guy that wants to do a, 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 doing a book on you. And he said, whatever you do, don't tell him I'm black. <laughs> Made the appointment, he walks in, there's a guy armed to the teeth as the bodyguard, he walks in as a black guy <laughs> to do this interview. I think that guy... And Daryl Davis, I think one of them became the godfather to the other one's kids. That's how close they got as friends. So the question is, what does God require of me to be a neighbor? Jesus gives the lawyer an example of what we'd call today just social work. He says, this is what the core of my, being my disciple looks like so that you can then eventually share the gospel with people. This is the core of loving your neighbor. Feeding, sheltering, protecting, liberating, befriending, you know, being whatever. Now, some of you might think, okay, Duane, you pulled out this goofy scripture. It's a story. It's a parable. I mean, how, how much can we say this is relevant to us? How much can we have to do this today? Maybe not. So I'm going to show you that this is not the only place in scripture where this kind of concept is mentioned. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn and check me out. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is talking. Always a good source. He says, look, here's what's going to happen. On the last day, the great shepherd, the judge, is going to take the sheep and the goats and he's going to separate them. 
Now, that's something that shepherds had to do sometimes because when they got time for shearing, you'd find all kinds of other critters mingling in with, uh, with the flock. And they, you know, some of them looked like sheep, but they really weren't. So you had to, you don't shear a goat. So you had to separate the sheep from the goats. So people knew what he was talking about when he was talking about this. But if you read that context, here's what's going on. Basically, you've got people who are saying, we are followers of Christ. We're disciples. We believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, in the last day, you're going to take all those people that say that, and you're going to look at some of them and you go, okay, I got some sheep, and we got some goats. You goats over here. And you're going to say, well, how does Jesus know the difference between a sheep and a goat? I mean, what's the distinction? Well, good news is that passage tells us. He says, he's going to say, you goats over here. They're going to go, why? Why do we have to go over here? We don't want to go over here. We want to go with those guys and go up to heaven. Jesus says, oh, here's the deal. You say you're a believer, but you're really not. You go over here. He says, you guys are goats. Why are we goats? He says this. Well, I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. I was homeless, and you didn't bring me in. I was sick, you didn't care for me. I was in prison, and you didn't visit me. And they're going to say, Lord, they're still, they're still believing they're Christians, right? When did we see you hungry, or naked, or homeless, or sick, or in prison? When you failed to do it. So the least of these, my brethren, you failed to do it to me. Now, I think that's one of the most, one, astounding, and two, terrifying passages in all scripture. That you can go your whole life long thinking that you are a Christian and be a goat. Isn't that terrifying? But see, this isn't new news. Jesus is always saying this, by their fruit, you're going to know my disciples. You're going to know my people by their fruit. So let's do fruit. I got a couple trees. Two trees. One's got fruit and leaves, the other's branches. Which one's alive? Not that hard. Not a, it's not a trick question. One with leaves, fruit. Does the, do the leaves and the fruit give that tree life? No. Leaves and fruit merely proves that it is alive. And Jesus has the audacity to say, here's how I know the difference between a person who just says they believe and a person who has actually believed. The difference is one has a life that is poured out in deeds of compassion and service to the poor, to the oppressed, to the downtrodden, to the hurting, to the needy. That's the evidence that you've actually experienced the salvation I've offered. It may come later, it may come sooner, but according to Christ, it always comes doesn't give you life. It merely proves you are alive. So first of all, Jesus mandates this for his disciples. And doesn't it make us sympathize with the lawyer just a little bit? Don't you want to say to Jesus, come on, let's be reasonable here because this is really hard. We've got to put some limits on this. Surely, surely we've got to put some limits because we're feeling really guilty right now. In fact, Jesus is going to say, look, I know you guys. You're going to try to limit this in three ways. You're going to try to limit the who. You're going to try to limit the when. And you're going to try to limit the how much. And you know what? That's what goats do. Goats do that. So he's not going to let us. Let's look at who. See, it's natural for us to want to give when we give. To aid people, to help people who are kind of like us. Who've had shared experiences like us. People that like us. People we like back. 
mean, maybe there's somebody out there that uh, comes in the door and they're unemployed and we help them get back to having a job and get employment. Uh, and now maybe they think, okay, I've got a job. I, this is a great church for doing that kind of stuff. I want to give some money to the church because I know that some of that money will be helping other people who are just like me. Maybe some of my friends I met while I was unemployed. It's natural, see, to want to identify with people that are like you, had shared experiences. It's not wrong to do that. But Jesus says, watch out, watch out, watch out. Because let me tell you who your neighbor is. And he puts into the story two main characters, a Jew and a Samaritan. And these two racial groups were utter bitter enemies at the time. And Jesus deliberately does this. Why? Because he's trying to say, your neighbor is not just someone who's like you. Your neighbor is anybody, absolutely anyone. Our hero reaches across this enormous racial barrier to help. It's Jesus' way of saying, don't you dare try to limit this or you're a goat. We try to limit the who? We try to limit the when. Very typical for us to say, well, there are certain kinds of people I don't mind helping. Lightning strikes their house, burns their house down. Not their fault. Got to help. A tsunami, an earthquake comes in, levels their village. Not their fault. Got to help. Hurricane comes in, floods the entire region. Not their fault. Surely go to help. But those people over there, that group of people over there, I know something about them. They're lazy. They're stupid. They're reckless. They're foolish. They're always in trouble. And it's their fault. Don't mind helping people who haven't done it themselves. You know, when they deserve my help, I'm okay with that. See, one of the problems with this is that Jesus has painted this story where the Samaritan, seeing the Jew along the road, near death, Normal Samaritan would absolutely believe in his mind that this Jew is getting exactly what he deserves. Because you've got these two groups, these two races, and each feels like the other is the oppressor. So when one group would see a member of the other group in distress, he'd be going, thank you, God. Thanks for giving them exactly what they deserve. They got exactly what's coming to them. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So Jesus gives it a person who looks at someone who in his own mind his own context, in his own way of thinking, based on where he's grown up, is seeing somebody that's getting exactly what's coming to him. But he still reaches down. So Jesus says, I don't want you limiting the when or the who. It ain't whether you think they deserve it or not. Jonathan Edwards, a pastor in the 1740s, some of you may have met him, uh, wrote a fascinating treatise called The Duty of Charity to the Poor. He wrote this, not because he just said, I think I just want to write this. No, he was trying to teach some of this stuff to his own congregation, and they were fighting him tooth and nail. They were giving him all kinds of grief. They did not want to do it. And he started making a list of all the excuses he heard. One of them was this. Well, these people we are talking about, Pastor, they're not, really, they're not truly poor. I really only have to help people who are truly destitute. I mean, on their last leg. And Edward's answer is, Seriously? Your argument is we should help people only in extreme destitution? How does that fit the rule of loving other people like you love yourself? I mean, when you are nearing destitution, when things are hard for you, you don't wait till you got no food, your house's energy is shut off, you're freezing it. You don't wait till the last second. You begin to take action to get yourself back on your feet long before you become totally destitute. 
You do something about your situation long before it's hopeless. You should be loving your neighbor as yourself. Another excuse he heard was this. Well, they just brought this trouble on themselves. They're just knuckleheads. I don't have to help when they have brought it on themselves. Edward's response was, interesting. Christ loves you. He looked down. He sees you. He laid himself out. He helps you. Saves you from all the want and misery and wretchedness that frankly you brought on yourself by your own goofiness. Should we not love others as Christ has loved us? In other words, if Christ had been in heaven and he said, you know, I think I'm going to go down there and sacrifice myself and I'm going to save people. And I'm going to do that for people who deserve it. It's going to be so awesome. You know, if he did that, he could have saved himself a trip. Because we've already heard in the book of Romans, there ain't nobody down here deserving of it. <laughs> he could have saved himself a trip. We try to limit the who, we try to limit the when. And Jesus says, don't you dare. And the third thing we try to limit is the how much. If you're not being stung yet, you're going you're gonna to feel it in this section. We have a tendency to do this. Well, if I were doing well, if I just had a little bit more, if I had some extra, but you know, I'm having trouble making ends meet as it is. I really can't afford to help people like that, can't afford to do it. And Jesus, deliberately, even though he's kind of making this story up, it's a parable, he puts this story on a stretch of road that everybody in his hearing would have known about. He doesn't say that there was a road. It was a particular road. And on that road, the robbers got him. He puts a Samaritan on a particularly dangerous stretch of road, this road between Jerusalem up in the hills and Jericho down in the valley. I've been on this road. Uh, it is dangerous even now. People, you, people drive that road and they can go off the side of the road and not be found for months. It's how terrain is wretched, right? But in this particular road, there was literally a thing called the pass of blood. It was a particular dangerous stretch that people knew about it and people would lay in wait and, and rob people there. So many people got robbed and killed there that they just I mean, it had a name, the pass of blood. So what happens is probably people are thinking, okay, this Jew has been walking around doing his thing and he's gotten ambushed on this pass of blood and he's dying. Long come a priest and a Levite. We'll get back to them later, but they see what's going on and they pass by on the other side. Why do they do that? Because they're smart. If you're passing by a guy that's been robbed and beaten and he ain't dead yet, that means the robbers are probably still close by. You'd be crazy to stop. They might be fatal to you. So when the Samaritan stops, he's risking everything. An incredible sacrifice. He opens up his purse. He doesn't just say, here's a couple of coins, go on your merry way. He says, I'm going to pay for any amount of time it takes to get this guy well. And Jesus is trying to say, that's what I want. I want that kind of radical sacrifice from my followers. See, Jonathan Edwards in his treatise deals with people who say, I can't afford to help people in need. And here's what he says. You guys need to remember Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. We are to bear one another's burdens. In other words, the gospel might oblige us to give when doing so results in creating a burden for ourselves. Isn't that what bearing one another's burdens is all about? You burden yourself to relieve a burden for somebody else? It isn't a burden if you're only giving out of your surplus. What does it cost us, really? In most cases, what did you really sacrifice? What are you doing without to be able to do that? Jesus says, let me, let me just tell you the magnitude of what I'm talking about here. Let me show you how radical it is. It extends even to people who ordinarily you would hate the sight of. You are to help even people who brought this on themselves. You are to help them to a place where even some of the burden that they're experiencing falls on you. So that in some degree, you are actually experiencing some of their difficulty. 
because you are giving that sacrificially. That's what I'm calling you to, Jesus says. Don't you dare try to limit it. Now that's the deal with being a neighbor. So let me ask you a question. How do you get anybody to live like this? I mean, is anybody going to say that living that way is wrong? No, because if you knew two people in your neighborhood that lived that way, you want to be as close to them as you could. <laughs> They'd be great people. Obviously, it's great. It's just that so few live this way. So it brings us to the question of motivation. Where do you get the power to do this? Where does it come from? Well, the only two ways I know that this can, be, that can try to happen. And Jesus is going to show us both of them. One works, one does not. The one that doesn't work is this. Try to get people to do this through morality. And it could be secular or religious morality, right? The secular version goes something like this. Well, you're enlightened. You're a smart person. If you're progressive, if you're liberal, if you care about people, if you're decent, if you're civic-minded, you're going to be concerned for the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden, the the unfortunate. You're going to vote for policies that help them. You're going to give of yourselves and volunteer your time and money. The religious version goes something like this. You got to give to the poor because the Bible tells you to. The Quran tells you to. The Torah tells you to. And there's not a single religion I know of in the world that doesn't put some emphasis on helping people. See, the problem is that both of those methods basically motivate people through guilt. You have so much. They have so little. Don't you feel bad? Don't you feel bad? See, left alone with your own thoughts when it's guilt involved, it's just not fun. And you know what? Jesus puts into the parable two people who are extremely moral, extremely religious, to make the point that morality and religion alone do not do the job. Priest and Levite. He could have chosen anybody for the story, but he purposely chooses these two rascals. These guys were professional givers to the poor. That was their job, to give alms to the poor. They were the ones who distributed the funds to the needy. What's Jesus trying to show us? People who out of a sense of duty or morality or conscience, when they normally would help people, but when it's going to cost them something, when it's going to make them risk something, even their lives, when they have to lay themselves out in a sacrificial way that Jesus is demanding, they cannot do it. Jesus is saying morality can't take you very far. It can make you a little bit generous. It can make you feel bad about the way you're living, but it doesn't really change your life. In fact, let me ask this. Anybody here feeling guilty right now? Anybody? Can I just say this? Knock it off. Stop it. Really, stop it. It's crazy. Because Jesus knows this. Your guilt isn't going to get you where he wants you to be. It won't take you to where Jesus wants you to go. Jesus is not trying to make the lawyer guilty. He's not trying to say, look how bad you are because you're not helping the poor. See, the key to everything in this story hangs on where he has placed the lawyer inside of it. Here's what I mean. Jesus could have told the story this way. Well, legal expert, a guy like you was riding down the road on the passage between Jerusalem and Jericho. And a man just like you sees a guy laying on the road. A Samaritan has been robbed and beaten and he's dying. And a man just like you got off his trusty steed and he pours oil on the Samaritan's wounds and he sacrifices himself and he risks his life and he gave to the Samaritan. You should go and do likewise. What if that was the story? 
what would the religious scholar have done? He would have laughed in Jesus' face. Are you kidding me? I'm not a traitor to my people. No self-respecting Israelite would do what you just talked about doing. Nobody would do that. In fact, I would take my trusty steed and I would trample him to death to put him out of his misery. You're not inspiring me to do anything differently. That's exactly what would have happened. But no, Jesus does the opposite. He puts the Jew in the road. He puts the hated Samaritan in the steed. And here's the question Jesus is asking the man. Okay, put yourself there. What if you were the one in the road? What if you were the one dying? What if you were the one bleeding out? What if the only hope you had was some act of radical, amazing grace from an enemy who owes you nothing, especially mercy? In fact, he owes you the opposite. What if your only hope was an act of neighborly love from someone who in no way owes you any of that? What if that was the situation? What would you want then? So Jesus is saying, he's not giving him a do it. He's not giving him a command. He's setting up a dynamic that's intended to change a heart. What if you were the one in need of, in receipt of radical grace? What if you were shockingly saved by the grace of someone who owes you nothing but rejection? Now, if that happened to you, possibly you would get up and start looking at the world differently. Maybe then, only then, could you become a radical loving neighbor. Only then would you look at people that you would normally demean and help. Only then would you look at people that you have despised and treat them differently. The wrong race, the wrong class, people you didn't think were responsible, you look at them and say, you know what? In reality, I was no different. I was saved by someone who didn't owe me that. I was saved by someone who had been an enemy. I was saved by someone I had rejected and resisted my entire life. I had been saved by radical grace. That would change you, dear lawyer. It would get rid of what makes you look down on other people who are not just like you. And that's what would happen. And Jesus is saying, you're, gonna, you're never going to be a neighbor until you get neighbored. You're never going to be a neighbor until you have experienced that neighboring. You'll never be a radical neighbor to someone else until you are the recipient of a radical grace that changes you at the heart level. And we say to ourselves, okay, Dwayne, that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing. Where in the world would you get something like that? You notice how Jesus has turned this whole thing around? Lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? But Jesus has changed the question to, who was the neighbor to you. Who would be willing to be the neighbor to you? Who was the neighbor to the one in need? And the guy has to choke it out. He can't even say the word Samaritan. The guy who showed mercy. What's Jesus done? He's saying, look, I'm not giving you a rule to follow. Is there a no racism rule? Sure there is. Is there a generosity rule? Should we be generous? Sure there is. But Jesus isn't giving us a rule to follow because a rule ain't going to change anybody's heart. You need to experience, be a recipient of the radical grace bestowed on you by an enemy that did not have to do it to change your heart. Well, where do you get that? Well, you're in church, so you might have a clue. Everyone who embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ gets everything you need at salvation. Here's what the gospel says. We are all self-justifiers. We're just like a lawyer. Every one of us. We all want to justify ourselves, to declare that we're good enough. The problem is that being a self-justifier just beats the snot out of us, right? Because if you place your significance and your worth and your value in what you accomplish, and yet you know this at your heart, in your heart level, 
you're not measuring up to the perfection that God requires. Yeah? And if you're aware, I mean, if you get it to borrow Whitney's term, if you are woke, you're going to come to the place where you are essentially acknowledging that you are laying in a ditch on the side of the road, bleeding out, with no hope before a holy God that you have rejected and offended. But the Bible says this, that Jesus Christ came into the world, he shows up on our road, and of course he owes us nothing but rejection, even, you know, because we, even though he's God, we pretended to be gods. We've acted like we're gods. But he found us on the road, he sees us, and he has compassion on us. And this word compassion is used about Jesus' emotional life than any other word in scripture. And he knew this. The stop would not just risk his life. It would cost him his life. And he did it anyway. When you see him as your good Samaritan, as your radical neighbor, it will change you. You will be led by him to play it forward. It won't be a response to a requirement or a law, but a response to this amazing free grace that that you've been given and the new heart that you had implanted in you and the Holy Spirit that is a seal that says, I will take you to where I'm going to take you. You're, You're mine now. Only when you see the true neighbor that is Christ and what he's done for you will you become able to be a true neighbor for anybody else. We've learned some things about neighboring this morning. The priest, the Levi, and the Samaritan all saw the guy on the road. But the priest and the Levi didn't think about him, didn't consider his plight, didn't come and contact him. They didn't look twice. They looked once and walked away. The other guy sees the person and he sees the misery and he sees the hurt and he has compassion. The Samaritan thought about the needs of the other guy. The two were, other, were just too busy. The Samaritan contacted the man, touched the man, came to where he was. Now, when you live in a city where the two nearest high schools to us have kids 60% or more that are living below the poverty level and are going home hungry every day. Where there are unwed teens being kicked out of their homes. Where there are kids in need of foster parents. Kids living on the street being swooped up by M13. Kids in need of big brothers and sisters. Uh, Listen, my daughter works as a counselor down in a school in D.C. She has a co-worker, black gal, who was a star professional basketball player. They both live in the same area of Brooklyn, in D.C. Her co-worker gets pulled over by the cops in D.C. two to four times every month. My daughter, who's white, never gets pulled over. I never get pulled over. See, if we know about these kind of things going on, these kind of injustices, and we choose to stay in our professional enclaves, spend all of our money on ourselves, we are the priest and the Levite. We are the goats. Can we just be honest? We may be geographically near, but we ain't neighbors. To make yourself a neighbor, you got to see. you got to contact. You have to consider. You have to be a, a part. There's a great letter written by uh, one of the Roman emperors named Julian. He was the last emperor uh, who was a pagan to rule the Roman Empire. He was actually known as Julian the Apostate. 
He did everything he could to reverse the spread of Christianity, which has taken the Roman Empire by storm. He failed miserably. He wrote a letter on why this was happening to one of his buddies. I want you to listen to this letter and see if you don't see how gospel messaging and neighboring go hand in glove. He says this, you know, the religion of the Greeks does not prosper. Why do we not observe how the charity of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause. It's disgraceful that these Christians support our poor in addition to their own, while everyone's able to see that our co-religionists lack aid from us. See, what he's trying to say is this. Greeks took care of the Greek poor, and they did it poorly. The Romans took care of the Roman poor, and they did it poorly. Christians took care of their poor and everyone else's, and they did it superbly. And they were taken, the Roman Empire, by storm. Never been a group of people like this in the history of the world. We've got to reweave those things together. The gospel messaging goes hand in glove with loving people who are not necessarily just like us. So listen, anybody here still feel guilty? You just feel guilty because you don't think you can live this way? Okay then do what Jesus Christ wants you to do with your guilt. If you are not a follower of Christ, you need to grasp the mercy, the forgiveness, the neighborliness that Jesus Christ has shown you. He is the good Samaritan. He has seen you on the road. He gave his life to save yours. It's just been your goofy pride that's kept you from accepting that all along. Maybe you don't think you're bleeding out on the side of the road in a ditch, but you are. You're simply blinded as to your real condition. Christians here today, when you reflect on what Jesus Christ did at the cost of himself to save you, it's, it's going to penetrate your heart if you are a true disciple. It, it will happen. It's not, it's not a question of if. It is a question of when. If, if it has happened, you will not be able to be a goat. I'm telling you. He will compel you to be a neighbor and to share the gospel. You won't be able not to. The Holy Spirit in you will empower you and drive you to do that. So, so listen, don't be content to be a goat. Don't, don't be content in thinking that you are in when you are fooling yourself. Let Christ transform you into the tree that has fruit and leaves and is alive and bears much fruit. Let's pray.